0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host Jonathan. Today we lay out a tale of two empires. Mind you that the word empire is used quite liberally here. These two, shall we just call them nations or groups? I don't know, take your pick. These two polities rose to prominence 3,000 miles away from each other. That is roughly 5,000 kilometers, but they were contemporaries contemporaries who would meet on the field of battle known as the Field of Blood. But, as always, context is key. And on this episode, that's what we're going to gather. Context. But first, before we begin our episode, I wanted to take just a moment to give a very heartfelt thank you to two more Patreon supporters, Hugo and Marcelo, To you both, I cannot accurately express my appreciation in words, so please accept my sincere thank you for believing in what is happening here at Fortune's Wheel Podcast, as well as my promise that I will continue to create the best content I can on these public episodes and in our Patreon supporters group. A new episode on Poland's mid-11th century is coming out soon. And if you would like to be like Marcello and Hugo and support the show, you can find the link to our Patreon page in the show notes and join for a very low monthly donation. I hope to see you over there. And if not, please believe me when I say that I still very, very much appreciate you listening in every episode and sharing the show with those you know. Okay, so today's episode, episode 65, is entitled A Tale of Two Empires. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. We're going to start this episode in the Western Sahara Desert. We need to see what these new Almoravids are doing leading up to their incursions into Iberia between the 1040s, when they were more or less founded, and about the 1070s or so. After that, we'll jump to Iberia and catch us all up with what Christian Iberia was doing during that same time. I promise, these are two seemingly separate paths that will eventually collide very soon on the podcast. Picking up in the year 1040 or so... A new community of Muslims sprung from the far western edges of the Sanhaja, in what is today the nations of Mauritania and western Sahara. They had established a firm grip over the Berbers from the Maghreb south to the Sahel, and they had already set up the circumstances for an invasion into pagan Ghana, which would occur in just a handful of years. Refer to episode 64 for that story. But West Africa was only one direction the Almoravids were looking Yahya ibn Ibrahim was the brains of this back-to-basics movement, and Abdullah ibn Yassin was its spiritual heart. Yahya maintained the political status, while Yassin was its fiery teacher, much of the time preaching and creating new teachers to spread the message that Islam throughout the Maghreb, the Sahara, and into Iberia even, had strayed, had left its original intent behind while its followers— capitalizing on the successes of their ancestors, had become too comfortable in the economic prosperity that radiated out of Córdoba. Yahya and Yassin, these two rejuvenated Islam's earliest teachings by interpreting the Quran through a much stricter lens than the one currently practiced in in the region. Thus, the Almoravids, as we've come to call them, had emerged as an international player, And they would soon emerge from the Sahel and the Sahara, and even the Maghreb, and move northward, across the Strait of Gibraltar, into the scattered pearls of the remnants of the illustrious Cordoba Caliphate. And it wouldn't be long, maybe a couple more decades or so, to go down in history, arguably, as the very first Berber Empire. Yassin depended on Yahya ibn Ibrahim's protection. However, Yassin found himself at a crossroads when, in 1048, Yahya died, most likely in battle, because it wasn't a foregone conclusion in the 1040s that this whole Almoravid movement was going to even get off the ground. Not yet, it wasn't anyway. So Yassin acted swiftly. <laughs> Uh, for lack of a better word, and he took the reins of this powerful, fledgling community. And Yassin, having already created a wide base of followers and teachers who were already spreading out in all directions and engaging in tribes and communities through the western portion of the Sahara Desert, well, this Yassin guy was already pretty much the guy anyway. So he slid right into position at the top. And the Almoravids should have been thankful for his leadership too because he would oversee some serious steps forward throughout the 1050s. This was a dangerous decade for the Almoravids because they had not had Yassin making decisions and putting certain people in the right positions. Then if they hadn't had him, then who knows if the Almoravids would have become what they became. It started with pushing into Takrur in the late 1040s, as we've said, and weakening Ghana's hold over the area, then creating a wave of teachers and soldiers moving into the Sanhaja, beginning in 1053. He oversaw Sijilmasa, flipping for the first time in 1054, and finally, Audagast fell in 1056, thus undermining the Saninke hold on power in the Empire of Ghana. These were serious moves with serious consequences, and one could say that it was Yasin's decisions that pushed Islam, in the area at least, once and for all, into West Africa. In the meantime, Yasin brought up another Yahya, a different Yahya, throughout the 1050s, named Yahya ibn Umar. But for our purposes here, the only reason to know him is that he was killed in the Battle of Tabfariya in early 1056, around the time his brother... Abu Bakr ibn Umar was conquering Audagast in Ghana. By the end of the year, Sijilmasa to the north was taken back by a Berber tribe, and Yassin pulled Abu Bakr out of Ghana and back north. By early winter of 1056, mere months after it was recaptured by other Berbers, Sijilmasa switched hands again, now back in Almoravid hands. Abu Bakr ibn Umar turned out to be another fantastic promotion by Yassin because Abu Bakr got to work trying to figure out why Sigil Masa fell. Turns out, his brother failed to secure the mountain passes and valley roads leading in and out of the Atlas Mountains. Well Abu Bakr very quickly shut down that mess, and Sigil Masa would stay in Almoravid control for the un- unforeseeable future. Sigilmasa, as of 1057, was secure. Now that said, Yassin moved with Abu Bakr on another Berber stronghold of Agmat, located just east of modern-day Marrakesh. The city's walls were stout and was widely considered a pretty well-defended citadel. Its leader, a Muslim Berber named Lakut, was quickly defeated in June of 1058. Abu Bakr married Lakut's wife and assumed her immense wealth, and in addition to this marriage, Abu Bakr made Agmat the Almoravid capital until the year 1070, when he founded the city of Marrakesh and moved the capital there. So, taking Aghmat in 1058 was a solid, solid victory for Abu Bakr and the Almoravids at large. And Yassin was also pleased. However, Yassin got a bit too comfortable, it seems, and he passed through a surrounding region. Abdullah and as he, excuse me, as he passed through a surrounding region, Abdullah ibn Yasin, the fiery heart of the Almoravids, well he was ambushed and killed on the spot. Abu Bakr quickly responded with deadly accuracy, sending a jolt to the area berbers who afterwards thought again about continuing such attacks. Thus the area became even more secure for Almoravid consolidation of power and wealth and it also proved to be an opportunity for Abu Bakr ibn Umar, who then assumed control of the entire Almoravid community, politically, spiritually, and militarily. By autumn of 1058, Almoravids were under Abu Bakr's sole control. Within just a few years, however, Abu Bakr positioned his own cousin as governor of Aghmat, and Abu Bakr moved on from the sedentary lifestyle a governor lived. By 1061, Abu Bakr had pushed eastward into the Sahara. His cousin, the governor of Agmat, well, he had moved northward and scored a huge victory for the Almoravids by capturing the important commercial hub and political city of Fez. As Abu Bakr steered his forces deeper into the Sahara, his cousin was cashing in on his newfound fame and influence. And Abu Bakr indeed trusted his cousin enough to take control over all the of the northern Almoravid lands, from Aghmat to Fez, on one condition. That Abu Bakr was still in charge, ultimately, of the entire Almoravid empire. His cousin quickly agreed. Seemed to be the smartest move in the time. But throughout the 1060s, both men made serious inroads in their respective areas. Abu Bakr secured more and more communities and territory in the western Sahara, while his cousin took village after village, town after town, and city after city in what is now modern day Morocco. There was even a moment when, in 1070, Abu Bakr divorced his wife, the wealthy former wife of Lakut, leader of Agmat so many years earlier, and he advised her to marry this same cousin. Within two years, this new marriage would cause a rift in the entire empire. Another make-or-break moment in the first decades of the Almoravid Empire. In 1072, the Almoravids were on the verge of civil war, a rift that could have broken the entire thing in two. And don't forget that year 1072, because up in Iberia, it also plays a pretty major role in that story. Abu Bakr left the now largely pacified Sanhajan tribes in the Sahara, and moved his thousand-strong army northward, toward Morocco, toward his cousin. The stage was set for a showdown, as both men were at the helm of some pretty solid forces. Abu Bakr and and his cousin met and negotiated terms in the mid-1070s. Both men believed in the puritanical aims of reform within Islam that the Almoravids sought to spread, and must have said the obvious out loud. Should we take this to the battlefield... Then the Almoravids were finished. They believed that they were members of a larger movement and set aside their egos. Abu Bakr agreed to cede Morocco to his cousin, while he returned to the vast desert to continue to spread, strengthen, and maintain Almoravid influence there. For Abu Bakr, this would result in the decision to once again push southward, through the punishing desert, across the Sahel, and into the empire of Ghana once again. By 1076, Ghana was as good as his, at least insofar as it was under his direct influence. And 1076 would mark the year that is traditionally cited as the official installation of Islam in West Africa, though, again, remember, when he first attacked Autogast two decades prior, the process had more or less started then. Abu Bakr continued his campaigns of Muslim expansion for another decade until, in the year 1087, he was killed in battle against another subset of Saninke people in the Sahel. However, his cousin back north in Morocco had continued his own campaigns to push Almoravid expansion near the Mediterranean. From his base in Fez, this man took city after city with ruthless abandon pushing his way further and further northward, and not just with military might, but also with a pretty savvy acumen for politics as well. He was terribly shrewd, this cousin of of Abu Bakr's, but by most accounts he was also a fair ruler, and it was during his negotiations that he made the most inroads with the people of the Maghreb. This cousin of Abu Bakr would be the guy most remember about the Almoravids. He would influence nearly all of Western Africa, from the Sahel to the Mediterranean, but he would also respond to a desperate plea made by the Muslims in Al-Andalus to the north. Thus the name Yusuf ibn Tashfin would forever be carved into the annals of Iberian history. But we've come to a stopping point in the Almoravid side of the story, and now I'd like us to shift our attentions to Iberia. Beginning in 1037, in the wake of the death of one of Christian Iberia's most formidable leaders in its long history so far. His name was Sancho III, king of Pamplona and Count of Aragon, until his death. Sancho III would unify much of Christian Iberia during the years that the caliphate to his south fractured and scattered its pearls across Al-Andalus. Through marriage, he further took, under his purview, Castile and a few other smaller counties. He pushed into Sobrare and Ribigorza, both by the year 1020, but his crowning achievement was the Kingdom of Léon, just before his death in 1034. But it wasn't just the geographic conquest he's remembered for. No, he made Pamplona, and thus all of his various acquisitions by extension, a place worth knowing and being friends with by those across the Pyrenees in France. Aquitaine, Blois, Gascony, Normandy, even the French monarchy, King Sancho III introduced Christian Iberia to the larger world of Christendom in the early 11th century, but he also brought in folks from Cluny to enact reforms within Iberian Christianity. So in either 1035 or 1036, when Sancho III died, all of his collected realms decided to, well... They decided to lose their damn minds is what happened. But giving credit where it's most certainly due, Sancho didn't exactly set any of them up for success either. See, Sancho had three sons. Yes, that age-old failure of fatherhood. He decided to split his new kingdom amongst them. Garcia Sanchez third, the eldest of them, assumed his father's crown of Pamplona. The second oldest son, Fernando I, already sat at at the top of Castilian nobility since Sancho III consumed Castile and made it a county of Pamplona's years earlier. Well, in a strange twist of fate, Castile was actually dad's favorite realm, and, well, how do you declare who your favorite child is without declaring who your favorite child is? You elevate your favorite county to a kingdom and make him its king, and then promptly die so you don't have to answer any questions. That's how. The third and youngest son was named Gonzalo, and he was thrown to the scraps of dad's enormous realm by becoming king of Ribagorza and Sobrarbe. Oh, and I know I said three sons, but I should clarify, there were three legitimate sons and one illegitimate son. Sancho III's bastard would actually become the first king of Aragon in 1063. He'll play a part in our story later. But in the meantime, he just remained a part of the nobility, though nowhere near the status of his three brothers. And finally, there was sweet Jimena Sanchez. Jimena was Sancho III's only daughter, at least in the records. She was married to the King of Leon, making her queen, which would be a nice, which would be nice in a handful of years or so. Now we're going to tell this part of the story through the eyes of Fernando's. And Fernando's story begins, for all intents and purposes, in 1037. See, Fernando had been the Count of Castile six years before his father, Sancho III, died. Now records are incredibly scant when it comes to Fernando, which is quite odd because Fernando I didn't achieve the great for nothing. To be fair, knowing how incredible his reign was, it could only be eclipsed by one man, a semi-mythical man they called El Cid, but we get ahead of ourselves there. This semi-mythical El Cid, though, wasn't even born when Fernando I assumed the title of Count of Castile for the record. Now, a charter has survived from 1036, a year after King Sancho III's death, that gives us a glimpse of the state of things in Christian Iberia at the time. It says, quote, "Emperor Bermudo was reigning in Leon, and Count Fernando in Castile, King Garcia in Pamplona, King Romero in Aragon, and King Gonzalo in Ribagorza." Quick clarification though, Bermuda III was king of Leon at the time, not emperor, but that's a minor technicality. But there came a time when Count Fernando of Castile would rise above his peers. In 1037, he was still a vassal of King Bermuda III of Leon. But there was a territorial dispute and it actually came to blows, resulting in a resounding victory by Fernando over his overlord Bermuda. So, essentially, Bermudo picks a fight over territory, Fernando ain't having it, and Bermudo dies. But there's one other element at play here. Due to Fernando's proximity to the bloodline of Sancho III, and Bermudo III himself, they were brothers-in-law, as well as Bermudo being without an heir, this all left Fernando as pretty much de facto heir to the royal crown of Leon. In one fell swoop, Fernando succeeded to the crown of Leon, and he quickly consolidated his county of Castile into it. Count Fernando I of Castile, within two years of his great father's death, which fractured the entire realm, had become King Fernando I of the newly minted kingdom of Leon and Castile. Fernando I was already no pushover. And knowing who their father was, the, ol- the other brothers no doubt began to get a little nervous. Fernando wasted no time getting into the captain's chair of Christian-Iberian politics. Like I said before, shockingly, we know quite little about this towering figure of the 11th century. Even Richard Fletcher, in his book The Quest for El Cid, writes, quote, The sources for Forna- Fernando's reign are so meager that we can know practically nothing about the workings of the Paria system. End quote. We know that he made incredibly deep inroads with Muslim taifas nearby, and part of this was a sort of vassalage status under his banner. For instance, it was Toledo that sought his help, and it was Fernando's response, you know, go back to North Africa and leave Iberia to the Christians like it was before. Yeah, that response. That sparked what some call the first volley of the the Reconquista. That is, the centuries-long struggle to regain the peninsula for Christians and kick out the Muslims for good. Fernando also set up a paria system, as mentioned in Fletcher's quote, which allowed Fernando to pretty much fleece the Muslim kingdoms to his south while also playing them against each other. Now, Fernando defeated his brother Garcia at the Battle of Atapuerca in late 1054, forcing Navarre into vassalage, another source of income, mind you. In 1060, he made the first of a series of moves on Zaragoza, the northernmost Muslim taifa, which resulted in a brief Paria-based income. And over the next three to four years, Fernando took his Leonese and Castilian soldiers and knights into places like Toledo, Seville, and Badajoz. At one point, Fernando's territory, including the vast Paria states, totaled over half of the Iberian Peninsula. In the mid to late 11th century, the Christians were pushing back with a vengeance. Other than these things, we know so little else about the man's reign. He is known in the records as Spain's first emperor, though, so there's that. He was clearly a towering figure at the time. And this last point might have tipped the scales by Fernando's last major act as king of Leon and Castile, though he still had one more campaign after this before his death. Now, Fernando most likely had either led or ordered raids into the Taifa of Badajoz since the 1050s. But we know that he led an army down the Duero River and then turning south, fighting a, seamless, a seemingly endless, weeks long, bloody, grueling series of minor battles and skirmishes from Lamego to Coimbra, capturing the entire Mondego River Valley, which is the longest river completely inside modern day Portugal. Upon capturing Coimbra, currently the fourth largest city in Portugal today, but at the time it was still an important yet still growing port village, he quickly established supremacy over the region, a region which was pretty much the northern half of modern-day Portugal, though at the time it was still largely the powerful, wealthy, and influential Muslim taifa of Badajoz. After setting up another paria there, Fernando turned eastward and by 1065 was across the peninsula, quite literally, in the Taifa of Valencia. By this time, Fernando I was the greatest Christian ruler the peninsula had ever seen, eclipsing even dear old dad. And after invading another powerful Muslim Taifa of Valencia on the Mediterranean coast, simultaneously quieting the rumblings from a disgruntled Zaragoza nearby, he returned home. But... In November, he fell ill, and King Fernando I, the great of the kingdom of Leon Castile, died shortly thereafter. Yes, Fernando I led a tumultuous life on the saddle and in the field, as much there as he was in some stuffy castle. He consolidated an incredible amount of Christian Iberia, and even some of Muslim Iberia, too. But his lasting legacy might be, in my own opinion, his system of parias he set up wherever he conquered. Parias were a serious source of income, as we said, but it served a dual purpose. It also forced local nobility to tax the pants off the laymen, causing unrest and even poverty in those areas. He knew that local unrest and poverty weren't his problem. They were the local ruler's problem and the local rulers had no choice but to raise the money or see the sharp end of a pointy sword. For Fernando, it was a win-win. Fletcher puts it like this, quote, The operation was fairly simple. In essence, it was, a recent historian has put it, a protection racket. Fernando exacted tribute from a dependent Taifa ruler in return for his protection. There was nothing original about it. But Fernando I showed himself exceptionally skillful, or exceptionally ruthless, or both, in wringing cash out of the luckless kinglets of the Muslim South. By the time of his death in 1065, and almost certainly for several years before that, Fernando was exacting regular tributes from Zaragoza, Toledo, and Badajoz, and occasional ones from Seville and Valencia. These tributes were such an important feature of the life 11th century Spain. So these parias were clearly an effective way to control the flailing, fractured Muslim structure to Fernando's south. But this wasn't the only source of income for for Fernando's coffers. The economies of 11th century Iberia, and even Europe and the Middle East at large, were nothing like what you're probably assuming, like what I assumed. Fletcher writes The amount of liquid wealth, ready cash, being pumped about the kingdom by the force of commercial transactions will surprise anybody who thinks that the economy of the eleventh century was sluggish or in some way primitive. End quote. At the end of the day, Fernando I left behind a row of Christian realms who were finally standing on their own two feet separately. Even Galicia, which was seen for centuries as, you know, kind of the out of the way backwater was in a position to exploit and capitalize on the potentiality of riches to come from its enormously important holy site of Santiago de Compostela, a church that held the remains of St. James. Though not as wealthy and influential and even populated as León or Castile, Galicia was finally able to stand up. Those three kingdoms, Galicia, León, Castile, would more or less be the center point of Christian-Iberian goings-on through the end of the century, in terms of power bases, that is. But we can't forget about the smaller kingdoms of Pamplona, Navarre, and Aragon in the east who had the advantage of not only independence, but also being, uh, of being interconnected with the kings and nobility of Galicia, Leon, and Castile. Not to mention their proximity to the French counties and duchies and marches on either side of the Pyrenees. The County of Barcelona and the Duchy of Aquitaine being two of their biggest relationships. And there and there across the Pyrenees would be one of Fernando's biggest contributions to Christian Iberia going forward. Fernando would take up the mantle and write it in miles and miles ahead of where his father had left it, it being European Christianity's influence on the somewhat isolated peninsula. See, Fernando was also known as a major, and that's not even a good enough word for it, he was known as a major benefactor for churches, monasteries, and bishoprics within his vast kingdom. It's said that Fernando, during his many adventures into the Taifa states to the south, that he brought the sacred relics of Saint Isidore from Seville to those in the monastery at Leon, among other artifacts and treasures found along the way that were currently in Muslim hands. Also, Fernando's largest contribution to the Catholic Church wasn't even in Iberia. It was, in fact, a yearly endowment of 1,000 dinars, or gold coins, to the famous church at Cluny in France, the wealthiest monastery in all of Christendom. He began this endowment in 1055, most likely. Now, this is no small detail, because Cluny would begin to reward the Iberian kingdoms with an influx of very learned monks and priests into the peninsula over the ensuing decades, which changed the face of Iberian Christianity, bringing it into the fold, ideologically and practically, of European Christianity once and for all. Not that it was separate, you know, but it certainly wasn't a focus. But as the 11th century was closing, it was clear that the Holy Land wasn't the only potential war zone between Christians and Muslims, and that attention needed to be cast west as well as east of Rome. And, and, according to Fletcher, there were two monasteries that vied for financial supremacy during his lifetime, Cluny in France and Monte Cassino in southern Italy. And Fernando's contribution, Fletcher says, quote, exceeded Clooney's entire income from her ample patrimonies. It was colossal, by far the largest gift Cluny had ever yet received from a king or other lay donor, one which was never to be surpassed, except by Fernando's son, Alfonso VI, who doubled it in 1077, end quote and you better believe that this was noticed by other rulers, namely one in Rome. Fletcher writes, quote, The Cluniac imprint upon the Spanish church was deep and lasting, but Cluniacs were not the only foreign churchmen to become active in the kingdom of Leon Castile, end quote. We will learn about these impacts as we unfold our story of medieval Iberia. But some minor moves that would would make some of those you know, quote-unquote, deep-lasting impacts, were, according to Fletcher, quote, among the agents of enforcement were another species of newcomer on the Spanish ecclesiastical scene, papal legates. These included such prominent figures as Gerald, Cardinal Bishop of Ostia, which is quite near Rome, mind you, in 1073, Cardinal Richard of Marseille, who presided over the Council of Burgos in 1080, and side note, that's a biggie. So remember that, Council of Burgos of 1080. And back to Fletcher. Abbot Gerentin of Dijon in 1084, and Cardinal Renarius, later Pope Pascal II, Pope from 1099 to 1118, who held a church council at Leon in 1090. End quote. Now these seem just like for names to drop, you know, without much consequence to the overall story, but I urge those who think so to reconsider. These are important folks in the 11th century ecclesiastical circles in Europe, and the fact that Christian Iberia was receiving them, hosting them, housing them, even holding full church councils, which impacted all of Christendom, well, this was proof positive that the Christian kingdoms, led by the newly formed Leon and Castile, of course, under Fernando I, were rising to major prominence as the century was winding down. Winding down? Winding up. Well, let's not go there quite yet. But in 1065, Fernando I, by his death, earned the nickname Fernando the Great. And it might be a worthy title for the man, much like his father. And we'll just have to wait and see if any of his sons earn the same rank in the hearts and minds of Iberians. I hope you join us on the next episode for that chapter when we see what happened when Fernando died.